You're listening to the Faith Matters Podcast with Steve McKinley. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad you could be with us. Uh, this is an episode I've been looking forward for quite some time now. We have back with us Tom Baker. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Glad to be back. And we're going for round number two here, talking about biblical archaeology. <clears throat> Tom was with us in the spring, and we talked about uh, biblical archaeology relating to the Old Testament. And we talked about some some of the really big events of the Old Testament, like the Exodus. And Tom presented a lot of information there. And if you didn't get a chance to watch those, I encourage you to go back and watch those. And but for round number two here this fall, we're we're going to um, hit the New Testament topics. And today specifically, we we want to talk about uh, the evidence for Jesus' public ministry. And Tom, this is a huge question in my mind because as I talk to a lot of people, uh, the skeptics out there who want to deny the Christian faith, they always bring up the question of did. Jesus really exist? Was there really a man named Jesus? Mm -hmm. So this is a crucial question for Christians and for Christianity. Was Jesus who he said he was, and did he do the things that the Bible says that he did? And so I'm so happy to have Tom here with us to present the evidence that's out there. And I think you know, probably, Tom, you'll talk about this a little bit, but we'll just present the evidence and leave it out there, and people can decide for themselves. Does the evidence substantiate the story of the Scripture um, of the New Testament? Um, so what, what do you have for us here? Well, hopefully I have a few answers for those sort of questions, because years ago there was a lot of skepticism about the historicity of Jesus. Did he really exist? Did he preach? Did he teach? Mm -hmm. And, you know, today most modern historians would not deny his existence mm -hmm. and that he was in a public ministry and that he did preach and he did teach. And Lord willing, next time we're going to look at some extra biblical historical sources that mention Jesus mm, and, what, and what he did and his life and his death and his burial and so on and so forth. So what we're going to deal with though today is the some of the evidences that are out there for his public ministry. So from the mm. time that he was baptized up until before his death, burial and resurrection. And so these are sort of indirect pieces of evidence, you know. We can't honestly show a miracle. You know, we can't say a miracle happened from archaeological evidences. But we can see that when the gospel writers and the New Testament writers wrote about the life of Jesus, we can see that what they said is accurate based upon the archaeological evidences that we have. So we believe by faith Jesus did miracles. But the Bible also talks about a lot of little details that really help to support the authenticity of what the gospel writers wrote about Jesus and his public ministry. And before we get going there, could we just uh, make the point right up front that a lot of people discount the Gospels mm. as historical documents mm. and as evidence. They yeah. think somehow we have to prove the Gospels, whereas mm. the Gospels stand alone as mm. historical evidence because mm. we have four historical documents that talk about the truth of Jesus. So yeah. where does this other evidence you're going to talk about, where does that fit in with the Gospels? Is it consistent with what we read in the Gospels? Or Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And both both the archaeological evidence what has been found and the extra biblical historical sources do support the claims and that are that were put down in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ and his public ministry. So so far there's nothing been been found out in archaeology or in history that counters what the gospels claim and what they write and what they record. And like you know, for instance, you know, you would start off with Jesus' public ministry. Take, for instance, we know that even in geographical details, the Gospels are accurate. And we can go there to Israel today and to parts of Jordan and so on. And there are still the places that are there from the Gospel times that we can point to, that we can visit. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just in historical details, but geographical details mm. and other political details and religious details too. It's all these little things that when you put them all together, it shows how authentic the Gospels are and that the Gospel writers knew what they were talking about. So we're, we're looking for consistency be, be, among yeah. all these things. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like the Bible kind of stands alone and outside of yeah. what we find elsewhere. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, great. So take, for instance, you start off with Jesus' public ministry, and his public ministry began at about the age of 30 years old, and his ministry lasted for, what, three and a half years, give or take. And it started with his public baptism at the site of the River Jordan, where John the Baptist was baptizing. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the Gospel accounts in John chapter 1 and in other places. Now, we know roughly the site of where Jesus was baptized. We know that because, of course, the Jordan today, you can still go to the Jordan River and you can visit the site and you can see the place. Now, the river itself has changed course over time. You know, the river hasn't stayed the same since it was 2,000 years ago. Mm. But the site where Jesus was baptized, which is called Bethany Beyond the Jordan, the Bible tells us it was in that place in particular, has not just been associated with Jesus and John the Baptist, but it was also associated with the prophet Elijah being taken up into heaven. Mm. And it's in that area too where Joshua led the nation of Israel into Canaan. Mm. So there's a lot associated biblically with the site of Bethany beyond Jordan and the Jordan baptismal site. And we know that from very early on that tradition and church history points to that area in the southern part of the Jordan Valley, just north of the Dead Sea, as being associated with Jesus' baptismal site. Because from very early days, Christians believed and that that was the place. And as a result, they erected churches and other sort of buildings on top of it. In fact, there's a site you can go to there in Jordan today, and it's believed to be the site of where Jesus was baptized. Mm. Now, that, you know, we may not have, you know, it would be very good if we could have a stone that was written by John the Baptist or Jesus saying, no, Jesus was baptized here, signed John. (laughs) But we know that from very early days that the site of Jesus' baptism site is in the southern Jordan, Mm. north of the Dead Sea, and it's long been associated with not just Christian history, but also with Jewish history. So it's a very significant place for Christians and for Jews as well. Mm. And then you see after that, the Bible tells us that he was led out into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil. But then after that, the Bible tells us he went up to Nazareth. He, Of course, we call him Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he was brought up. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was brought up in Nazareth. And 
you can go to Nazareth today. The city of Nazareth still exists in what is the region of Galilee, just west of the Sea of Galilee. So you can go there today. It's a site that exists. There's been a settlement there for centuries and millennia. So like I said, these things point to the authenticity of the gospel accounts. Because if there was no city of the town of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, well, then that would make the claims of the Gospels very dubious. But there was an ancient city there. Mm. Jesus grew up there, the Bible tells us, and he also preached there. And there's one interesting account where Jesus in the Gospels in Luke chapter 4, he's preaching there and he declares that he's the Messiah, which causes a bit of an uh, outrage among the people of Nazareth because they've been brought up with Jesus and they're thinking, huh, who's this? We know Jesus, and here he is saying he's the Messiah. So, you know, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, mm-hmm. and his friends and his neighbors and his family understood what he was saying, mm. and some of them didn't like that. And so, as a result, what happens in Luke 4 is they try to literally throw him over a cliff. Mm. Now, if you go to Nazareth today, there are it's the city itself is situated on near the edge of a massive hill and the hill ends in this abrupt cliff that if you were thrown off this cliff it you'd be dead by the time you hit the bottom it's a it's a huge hill with a steep cliff Mm. and now if you read the gospel accounts and it said that this happened but then you go to nazareth on a flat plain that you couldn't throw someone off to there, you know, that would not be offensive. The story wouldn't have worked. No, it wouldn't have worked, exactly, because the geographical details would be wrong. But Luke 4 very clearly said the people of the town tried to kill him, Jesus, by throwing him off this cliff, which they failed in doing because he miraculously walked out. So these are like little details, like, you know, we often want big things to point to and that are maybe inscribed in stone saying this, that, or the other. But the fact of the matter is, these are small details that we can point to and say, look, the gospel writers like Luke knew what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Especially, or even early on in Jesus' public ministry. And so he was rejected in Nazareth, and so he couldn't hang around there anymore because people didn't want him there. And so what happens next in the gospels is Jesus then moved to a place called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was located at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. You, In fact, we know where the site of Capernaum is today. You can go and visit it today. Lots of tourists go mm. there. Now, Capernaum, the name means uh, the village of Nahum. Now, mm. that's significant okay. because there is a prophet called Nahum in the Old Testament. So the town seems to be associated with the prophets. So presumably he was born there or maybe he lived there for a time. Mm. You know, okay. we, do, we don't know all the details. Yeah, But for... Most of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, that was his base of operations. Hmm. Now, you may say, well, why did he pick what was, in essence, a very small fishing town on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee? That does not make much sense. You'd think he would have made his headquarters in Jerusalem or some other big city. But show, this shows the gospel's authenticity because even though Capernaum seemed to be out of the way, it was actually in a very important position because Capernaum is located near what was called in the first century um, uh, AD the Via Maris. Now, the Via Maris is 
was a road that went all the way from Egypt up to Babylon or mm. Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq. So that was right next to Capernaum. Mm. And there was other trade railroads that joined up there. So this wasn't just some random choice. I believe Jesus chose that town because it was located in a strategic <laughs> position. I always kind of figured it was because he just wanted to be out of the way of people who wanted to kill him. <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> Might the, be more yeah. to it than that. Yeah. But it, now Jesus wasn't all afraid of confronting his scoffers and mockers. That's true. You know? Yeah. Multiple times he went to Jerusalem, even though he was being opposed. Mm-hmm. But Capernaum is significant because there is a large archaeological <coughs> site there. And what you find is, is there's a few places there that are have a connection to the gospel accounts. One of them is that they found a synagogue in Capernaum. <coughs> and what they found is, is that this synagogue, you go there today and you see this quite impressive uh, structure. Now, you have to consider that the structure that you see today, the majority of it was built by the Byzantines later on. But if you look under that marble structure, it has pillars, it looks very nice, sort of impressive. But what you found is, is that under this marble synagogue that was built later on after the time of Jesus, they found this basalt foundation, so basalt rock, which is all over the place in Galilee. It was literally the main stone found in the region, so they would build out of that for the most part. But what you find is, is that when they dug under that foundation, they found this basalt and they found coins there. And these date to the first century. And these seem to have been the original foundations of the synagogue that Jesus would have preached and taught in. Mm. Now, you know, this shows significance because what it does show is that this later synagogue was built on the original foundations of the place where Jesus preached and taught because Jesus went from synagogue to synagogue preaching and teaching the, uh, the gospel to the Jews. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like later on the Byzantines came along and said, oh, whoa, this seems to be the place where Jesus preached, so let's build another more splendid synagogue on top of it. Hmm. Now, so you can go there, you can visit, you can see the original foundations, you can see the more modern structure on top of it. And of course, the more modern structure is over a thousand years old, but you know, you get what I mean. Uh And so you can go there. So it's like that's the place where Jesus preached and taught when he was in Capernaum. Hmm. But also, you know, we think or in the gospel accounts where, like, for instance, when Jesus was preaching and teaching, apparently in that synagogue, and there probably would have only been one synagogue in that town because it was very, very small. But just a stone's throw away is a place that's believed to be the house where Peter lived. And you may, oh. say, and you may say, how do you know that? Well, because the gospels tell us that, right, Peter, at one point, his mother-in-law was sick, which shows you Peter was married. His mother-in-law was sick. Jesus was preaching in the synagogue nearby. Word is sent over to Jesus, and Jesus hears about this and heals Peter's mother-in-law, and she's better instantly and ministers to Jesus. But what happened, though, of course, is that would have been a significant site. That would have been one of the sites of Jesus' miracles. But what they found in Capernaum is that they found this early building, and in the building, 
in inscriptions on the wall, they found these inscriptions that relate to Christianity from the first century AD. So mm. it makes mention of Jesus, it makes mention of other Christian themes, it makes mention of things that happened. And so this shows that from very early on, this specific building in Capernaum was noted for something having happened there that was significant to early Christians. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so, of course, as a result, it was associated with miracles. And say, if you go to um, the Holy Lands today, anywhere that's associated with a miracle, there's a church or a monastery on top of it. Mm-hmm. You literally go there, you can nearly guarantee there's a church or monastery or something like that on top. But yeah. over the years, this simple residence, this house, churches were built on it. Hmm. And, you know, if you go there today, there's a modern church that has been put over the excavation site at Capernaum. Okay. Which sort of shows you that over the years, there's been a long association with this site, which is believed to be the house of Peter, Mm. where Peter's Mm -hmm. mother-in-law was healed. Hmm. And, you know, from first century AD. So it's very long provenance, you Mm. know, that just can't be ignored. Because, Mm. you know, if you were in the first century, you would have... Probably, you know, these people may have met Jesus Mm. or they may have heard even from the apostles or others about Jesus. Yeah. And so they would have probably known, oh, this happened there, this happened there, this happened there. Wow. You know, Uh so it's it's sort of exciting stuff because they are much closer to the events than we were. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, you go to certain sites in Israel today, whether it's associated with the Old Testament, New Testament, and some sites are given associations with the Bible based on tradition. And, you know, I'll just say this, tradition in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But our first authority is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And if the Bible says one thing and tradition says another, you know, we need to, you know, be careful of it and avoid it. But fact of the matter is, when you have tradition and the Bible meeting up, then I don't believe there's necessarily anything wrong with that. We just have to be a bit careful, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, coming to conclusions. It strengthens, it yeah. strengthens the argument. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But even just like for other little things, like take, for instance, some, you know, you may have read in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, Jesus talks about, he's speaking to the Jews and the rules of the synagogue, and he mentions the seat of Moses. And you may say, well, what does that mean? You know, seat of Moses, What? how is that significant? Well, this next found, find that was found near Capernaum in a place called Chorazin was found in a synagogue. So there were synagogues in most, you know, moderately sized settlements. You know, there had to be, according to Jewish tradition, at least 10 Jewish families in a town led by 10 men to form a synagogue. So if you had 10 men, 10 families, that would consist of a synagogue. Hmm. But Jesus mentions that there's the seat of Moses. Now, the seat of Moses, we can actually find in archaeology. The seat of Moses was a seat of authority that was in a synagogue. Hmm. And so the rabbi or the teacher would sit on that and what they would do is, is if they were sitting in that and they were saying pronouncing the judgment based on the Old Testament law of Moses, 
they were considered to have had the authority of Moses behind what they were saying. So are you saying that every synagogue had one of these? Yeah. The seat of Moses. The seat of okay. Moses, yeah. And there's different examples of them. In fact, you find some in, like, in Turkey, you found a very extravagant one at the site of uh, several sites where Jews were associated with. Hmm. So the leader, the rabbi, would sit in it, and if he said something while sitting on it, he was considered to have the authority of the law and Moses behind him. Hmm. Now, in Chorazin, they found in a synagogue a seat of Moses, an ornate seat, and they found written in Aramaic, a language that's sort of related to Hebrew, and they found that this seat had been had been dedicated to the synagogue by a man called Judah ben Ishmael, and they had put his name on it because he had helped support the building of the synagogue. Hmm. So, you know, you may say, well, what's the point? Well, the point is, is for a long time people wonder, well, what does this mean by the seat of Moses? Well, the seat of Moses was something that they were doing in the first century and later. And so Matthew knew what they were. He, Matthew knew what he was talking about when he wrote down these things. Hmm. And you know, Jesus, of course, also understood these facts. And now we can point to examples of these seats of Moses in different synagogues across the ancient world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's another like small little detail that helps to back up the New Testament's mm-hmm. authenticity. Yeah, I can give you. I'll give you another example. You read oftentimes in the Gospels that Jesus would sail on the Sea of Galilee back and forth from place to place with Peter, James and John and others, right? And so what you find is is that you would expect boats, fishing boats. Now, a fishing mm-hmm. boat has to be a certain size for a, it's a large enough group of men to be sailing and fishing in it. And you read in the Gospel accounts that there would often seemingly be several men and Jesus in a boat at any mm-hmm. one time. So these weren't little like rowboats you might get on the lake with one person. These were considerable vessels. Now, what's interesting, though, is in that 1986, during a time of drought, which Israel does have quite often, being a hot Middle Eastern country, but for this period there had been a long drought, a guy was out walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he comes across what seems to be these bits of wood sticking up out the mud that had been revealed from the drought. So the water was low, and he could see what looked to be this wooden frame. And so they start to excavate this structure and find out that it was actually an authentic fishing boat. Now, the date of it varies. Some date to about 120 BC or up to 40 AD. And so we don't know the exact date of this. But when it was excavated, which is the story in and of itself, because they had to work against the clock, because if the boat dried out, they couldn't preserve it. Oh. And so they excavated it, and they actually sprayed the entire thing with expandy foam. Huh. So now you put an insulation in, in places, so it expands, and it preserved it. Huh. And so they bought the boat back, they preserved the wood, and you can actually go and visit it today. Hmm. And it's called the Kinneret boat, or some people refer it to refer to it as the jesus boat Mm -hmm. now i'm not saying that this is the boat of jesus but that's what just people call it the jesus boat Mm -hmm. you know there's no inscription on it saying i jesus was in this boat or peter or james or john or so on Mm -hmm. but the significance is though is that this boat 
estimate, you know, guesses vary as to how many people it could contain, but it's a significant large bowl. And they say that possibly up to five or 12 people could get in this boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee. Hmm. Now, 120 BC to 40 AD is in the ballpark of Jesus's um, uh, ministry, especially the 40 AD. You know, he was crucified earlier than that. But what it helps us to understand is that the Gospels state that Jesus and a group of men would get in these boats, sail back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. Why this boat is significant is it shows that there were such vessels on the Sea of Galilee when the Bible states it. They were. So it, it puts the New Testament writers in the period. Yeah. And uh, they weren't removed from that in the second or third century or something. And trying to go back and guess yeah. at what was going on. Yeah. They, and they knew these things yeah. when they wrote. Yeah, like if you even read in the Gospels, that it'll tell you that Jesus mm. at some points was asleep in the boat. Mm. You know, so these weren't little things. Right. And, you know, before that, we didn't really have any examples of what boats in the first century in the Sea of Galilee would have been like. But what it does show is that this was a considerable enough vessel for, that, for the Sea of Galilee, a big lake. Hmm. And so the Bible understands what it's talking about. It knows what it speaks about. Hmm. And so, you know, I don't think that this boat is the boat that Jesus went in. Right. I don't think it is. Uh-huh. Now, it could be, maybe, but... But it's but it's the type of boat that he, he would have gone out yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So, or Peter, James, and John would have used. It's, it's like, consistent yeah. with with what we read exactly and that's what another reason why we take the scriptures seriously Mm -hmm. because you know if there were no such vessels on the sea of galilee then you'd be sort of scratching your head and wondering well the bible doesn't seem to know what it speaks about right okay another significant site for archaeologically speaking that relates to christianity is the site of caesarea philippi Mm-hmm. Now, Caesarea Philippi is important in the Gospels because it's in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18, that the Gospels tell us that it was at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus pronounced that he was the rock, that Peter was a small stone, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the site, Caesarea Philippi, where those things were pronounced by the Lord to the disciples, and of course, also, the also Peter claimed Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ. Mm-hmm. And so there a lot of stuff happened there at the site of Caesarea Philippi. Now there were different Caesareas. There was also a Caesarea Maritima. You know, Caesarea just meant the city of Caesar. So mm. there was a lot of Caesareas. But Caesarea Philippi is close to Mount Hermon in modern day Israel, mm. in northern Israel. Now this site is significant for several reasons. Firstly, it was long associated with pagan idol worship. The reason being is that a river began to flow from that site. Literally, the site, if you go there today, it's like the side of a cliff, like a big rock. And a river, the river Panaeus starts to flow out from that rock. Now, that's significant because in the ancient world, where rivers originated were strongly associated with idol worship and okay. the worship of gods. Hmm. Specifically at that site, Baal had been worshipped there, the Old Testament god of thunder and storms. Pan, you know, the god who had the goat legs and the pipes and from Greek um, uh, religion, 
he was worshipped there. Also, later on, the Roman emperors were worshipped at the site, and other gods were worshipped there too. So it had a strong association with idolatry and with pagan worship, and a lot of shrines and temples were built there. Now, what's significant, though, is firstly, Peter, when Peter makes his declaration that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus says that upon this rock, him meaning Jesus, he mentions a massive rock, a huge rock. Now, at Caesarea Philippi, what you notice is, is that there is this massive rock where all these shrines and temples are built. Huge stone, huge side of a cliff. If you look at pictures of it, it's an impressive sight. But also, Jesus mentions very clearly that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, that's significant for the site of Caesarea Philippi because... At that site was considered a gate to the underworld by the pagan idolaters. Oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> so what would happen is, see, the river started there, and what would happen is, is because they believed that that was an entrance down into the underworld, mm-hmm. and that the god Pan and Baal and other gods were worshipped there. What they would do is every year they would make an offering to the gods into the source of that river in mm. river and some people claim it could have been human sacrifices or animal sacrifices but whatever happened what they would do is they would take the sacrificial victim throw them into the water source and if it floated they believed the sacrifice had been rejected mm. and if it sunk it had been accepted so they sort of keep on doing it until they get the result they wanted other mm, words okay. it's sunk mm-hmm. but then what happened is though is when Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. I believe he didn't just mean, oh, that, you know, the, no, that the, the local churches will continue on. I believe that he, when he was saying those words, probably in the background, there was these temples to Pan and the emperors and so on. And he's saying, look, these sites of pagan idolatrous worship will not be able to stand. They won't, you, they won't be able to stop you from what you're doing and from creating local churches and from spreading the gospel. And so people, that's probably significant because, um, <clears throat> you know, that would have been kind of um, it would have caused maybe a little bit of fear or anxiety in them going up against these big religions of the day. Yeah. yeah. And uh, here's this fledgling little group following yeah. this man who claims to be special. Yeah. And maybe they're even thinking in the back of their minds, am I doing the right thing here yeah. Oh, yeah. following this man? Yeah, yeah. And it's significant because that's when Peter says, oh, Jesus, you're the Christ. We believe that. Mm-hmm. And so it's upon that belief and the fact that the Lord wanted local churches to be established. He's saying, look, you guys, you're going to go out and based upon your faith in me as being the Messiah mm-hmm. and my command to you to stir in the future churches, you know, emperor worship isn't going to prevail, the worship of Pan, these gates of hell, they won't have any success against you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, think of it this way. Christianity is still alive and well to this day. And yeah. the gates of hell at Caesarea <clears throat> Philippi, well, they're just a bunch of archaeological ruins. The emperors right. are no longer worshipped. and <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, you know... Yeah. It's and the religions of the world today, the other religions have nothing to say to Christianity today. No. So, no. And yeah, so it's proven to be true. Yeah. 
And so it shows you like in <clears throat> Matthew 16, you know, you can read it at face value and you can get the gist. But I believe when, Peter, when Jesus said those things, there was more to it based on the location and what was going on. Mm, that's fascinating to me. And so it just shows that we know, he, Jesus knew what he was talking about. The gospel writers understood what they were talking about. Yeah. Hold that thought. <laughs> so far, of course, we've been dealing with places and archaeology that's relating to Jesus' public ministry in the northern part of Israel, in and around Galilee. Now, he preached and taught, in, though, in several other places in and around the modern-day countries of Israel and Jordan. But Jerusalem is a significant place in relation to Jesus' life and ministry because he would have been there at several points during his public ministry of about three and a half years, mm -hmm. up until his death, burial, and resurrection. He would have gone there for Passovers <clears throat> and for the feasts, as was required by the law of Moses, which he obeyed fully. Mm -hmm. And so there's one instance in the Gospel of John where he's in Jerusalem and he comes across the ma a man who is blind. He's been born blind. He's never been able to see. And Jesus heals the man by making clay from spit. He then puts the clay on the man's eyes and he says, mm -hmm. go down to a place called the Pool of Siloam and wash. And when he washed his eyes, the man who was blind washed his eyes, he then could see again, and it was a miracle, and everyone knew it because everyone knew this guy had been blind for in his entire life. And there was a big argument about uh, how how was he healed? Yeah, how was he? Healed? And who is Jesus? Actually, the kind of the topic yeah. here of what we're trying to to at least corroborate. But uh, that was the question: how, how did you, how how are you healed? And is this man from God or is he of the devil? Yeah, exactly. So it's actually kind of a humorous conversation. John chapter nine. Yeah. Take a look at that. Yeah, and so. You know, the Pool of Siloam, there has been a site that's long been associated as the Pool of Siloam. Now, there is a possibility that there were two pools of Siloam. An older one, huh. which dates to the time of the kings, hmm. which is at the end of uh, Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem. A oh. lot of people considered that that may have been the original pool of Siloam. But then later on in the first century, there has been discovered uh, a larger pool built by King Herod the Great, just a little bit down from what might have been the original pool at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, this was found completely by accident because they were digging up some sewage pipes. And when they were digging them up, they found these steps that went down into this large pool. And they were like... What's this we found? And so that's the danger of excavating in Israel. Because if you dig anywhere, it says in Jerusalem, you're going to find something and it ruin your work. Yeah, because then it has to be a historical dig, dig yeah, site, right? E exactly. And yeah. so they found this site, and they know it dates to the time of Herod the Great because they found pottery and coins that are date to the reign of King Herod. And so a lot of people now think that that is the Pool of Siloam that Jesus... Uh, sent the man to to wash his eyes out hmm. and so it could have been the other one but most people now would say this one hmm. and so it's yet another piece of evidence to show hey the bible writers knew what they were talking about when they wrote down these things so it's in the exact right place and where the bible says it is and guess what they found it in the ground mm -hmm. and so there are, of course 
I, it, they're, in Israel, they're sort of afraid of digging below the ground because they find so many things and it hinders their development of other things, but mm-hmm. it's a benefit to them. Yeah. But just one last thing, and then we'll be finished. There's another pool mentioned in the Bible in John chapter 5, verse 2, two and this is called the Pool of Bethesda. Mm. Now, this is significant mm. because in John chapter 5, it describes the story of a man who was born lame and he w- desperately wanted to get into this pool of war, which it was, which the Bible says it was touched by an angel. And when it would ripple, whoever got into it first would be healed. Mm. Now, this poor guy had been lame. And he wasn't quick enough, obviously, to get down to the pool because other people were quicker than him. Mm. And so he'd been there a very long time. Now, the thing is, though, Jesus heals that man beside the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. Now, if you were to look on a map, the pool of Siloam is at the southern end of Jerusalem. The pool of Bethesda is at the northern end. So if you were to look at the Temple Mount, just look, consider north of the Temple Mount today, that's where the pool of Bethesda is. Pool of Siloam is to the south of the Temple Mount today. So mm, okay. rough areas, just to give you an idea where these things were going on. Mm. But what's significant, note is that in John chapter 5, verse 2, it describes how that at that location of Bethesda, there were five pools, but there were also five roofed walkways at that site. Now, that's very specific information five pools and five colonnaded walkways. So they would have columns. Oh, they would sort of be like open corridors. They have the columns at the side, the roof above it. And there was five of them. Now that's Mm. specific information. So it's not just vague. There are some pools. No, it's giving you specific information. Mm. Now, the thing is, Jerusalem, of course, over the years has been has been built and destroyed, built and destroyed, built and destroyed. So the modern day level of the city of Jerusalem is actually far above the first century level. So you actually have to go under a good bit underground to get to the steps where Jesus would have stepped on and other apostles and so on. But when they were digging there at the northern end of Jerusalem, between 1957 and 1962, they found a structure. And it was actually on top of a a much later Byzantine church. In fact, today you can go to the site. There's a church there called the Church of St. Anne. And it's beside the Church of St. Anne, which is a medieval church, quite impressive in and of itself. But just a stone's throw away is the site of the Pool of Bethesda. And so what happened is they dug down and below a medieval church, a crusader church, they found, guess what? They found these pools and these five colonnaded roofed walkways, Mm. just as the Bible says, Mm. beside the sheep gate, just as the Bible says. Mm. Interesting. And so it's you go there today and it's quite hard to figure it out because it's sort of a jumble of uh, first century um, Roman stuff and then Crusader stuff and uh, and it sort of gets a little bit confusing, you know, if you look Mm. at just a picture of it, but. Archaeologists discovered this and they saw the five walkways. They saw the pools and they had to come to the conclusion that this was the pool of Bethesda that was spoken about in John chapter 5, verse 2. Mm-hmm. And so this is just some examples of the archaeology that relates to Jesus' public ministry. 
Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, you know, there's other stuff, m- minor stuff, but these are the more significant things. Mm-hmm. And so, which I think helped to validate and show that the Bible knows what it's talking about. Mm-hmm. There was a site of Bethany beyond the Jordan. We can go there today. There is a site of Nazareth. There is a site of Capernaum. There is a site of the Pool of Siloam and the Pool of Bethesda and Moses' seat. You know, mm-hmm. these are little things that, you know, we may read over and just think, ah, that's not interesting. But these are important details that shows that the biblical authors knew what they were writing about, mm-hmm. which we believe is not by chance because we believe the scriptures were in, are inspired by God and accurate in the details that they give us. Mm-hmm. And so these are just some, I believe, good examples to show that Jesus' public ministry is authentic. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, lots of great information here. Um, I've learned a lot. And uh, as we said at the beginning, the Gospels themselves are the direct evidence. Mm. And we have four historical documents that speak of the ministry of Jesus. Mm. Uh, And yet all around Israel, we have stuff that's consistent with what we read in the Gospels. Mm. And so it's not like somebody came along later and was just making stuff up. I mean, they were right there. Uh, these are people who knew the culture, knew the times, uh, knew the geography, and um, you know things that were covered up later on. Yeah. And so uh, it, it just adds credence to the New Testament. A lot of the arguments they hear about there, out there, maybe even some of the arguments that you have for why the uh, why the gospels aren't true. Uh, one of those. A few of those arguments have to do with, well, they were people who wrote long after the time and they were just making stuff up. Mm. That's not consistent with uh, the information that uh, you sh- shared here, Tom. Yeah. And so this is this is great. And uh, we have more to come. So mm. please stay tuned. What is our next topic? Well, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at extra biblical historical sources for Jesus Christ. So in other words, mm-hmm. we've been dealing with the archaeology, the things in the ground and the geography. But the question is, is there historical sources that outside of the Bible that speak about Jesus and speak about him doing miracles and being crucified and rising from the dead? Okay, I'm going to go with yes, but <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. I've actually done a little bit of reading about that in the past. Extremely interesting uh, topic, and I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. And uh, just before we sign off here, let's mention your YouTube channel, yes, Tom. Okay. Well, uh, earlier this year, I started a YouTube channel called Gospel and Spade. So if you go up on YouTube or you go on Google, put Gospel and Spade, uh, it should come up. And I do every week at this point a short little two to three minute video dealing with different biblical artifacts i'm going for the old testament at the moment which and the videos relate to these artifacts that help to support the old testament account Mm -hmm. so they're only short they're not not too complicated they're not technical it's just to give information to show that just as the new testament is archaeologically backed up so is the old testament so like i said gospel and spade go on youtube if you like what you see, leave a like and comment and subscribe. It does help an awful lot. And you're putting out one video per week. Yeah. And uh, my my kids like to watch that. We watch them together as a family. And we're starting to learn things. The, yeah. the kids are learning things. Uh, there's a lot of great information yeah. there. So, 
Yeah. And hopefully the channel will grow and I'll do different topics. So, but right. that's what I'm yeah. doing at the moment. The so. more, the more interest, the more, uh, more work you put into it. And, uh, it's a great, uh, great resource for us. So, okay, well, come back next week and, and we'll, we'll present the, the next topic. I'm looking forward to that. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.